feels appropriate to me to have the mouse here today. I don't know if any of you have noticed this. Somebody brought it. Uh, and um, I'm a little slow. You know, it actually took me a full day to get the joke. <laughs> and then I, I was sitting here this morning, you know, coming in and looking at it and I'm thinking, why did somebody put that there? What was that about? And then uh, something, you know, you know, just being with experience, the image of the front cover of the Don't Look Down on the Defilements book flashed into my mind of a little meditator looking down at the little mouse which is representing the defilements. And it's like, oh, those are defilements. <laughs> so, so it seems appropriate to me to have the mi- mouse smiling at me today because we're going, I'm going to explore defilements. We're going to explore defilements in the talk today. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> I'd like to uh, to begin by um, offering some words from the Buddha, or uh, really, I'm more um, describing uh, an analogy and uh, summarizing one of the suttas. I don't really have time to go through the sutta in the way that I, I might in a study class. Um, but um, you know, I'd like to share this analogy with you. I recently did a study of this text with some people. And um, as I was studying it, I realized, wow, this is so appropriate for Sayadaw Utejaniya's approach. You know, it really resonated with me with this, this style of practice. And the sutta is a simile uh, that's called the simile of the cloth. And the basic analogy that's offered at the beginning of the sutta is of a, um, the Buddha says, you know, if there's, a, if there's a stained cloth, if there's a cloth that has, you know, all kinds of um, marks and stains on it, uh, that cloth, if it's dyed, if you put it into uh, a vat of dye, um, will take up the dye, but the cloth will not be perfectly colored. The, the stain impacts how it takes up the dye. And he says, if, the, if you um, have a cloth that is clean, let's see, what does he say? Suppose a cloth were pure and bright, and a dyer dipped it in some dye or other, whether blue or yellow or red or carmine. It would look well dyed and pure in color. Why is that? Because of the purity of the cloth. And so this is the analogy that he starts with in this text about um, this cloth that has stains on it uh, versus a cloth that is not stained. And that the um, attempt to dye the cloth doesn't produce a good quality unless the, the uh, cloth is not stained. So the stains here, um, he relates to the defilements of mind. He says, our minds are stained by defilements. And he gives a great list here. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is a, a great list of defilements. What are the imperfections that defile the mind? Covetousness and unrighteous greed is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Ill will is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Anger is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Resentment is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Contempt is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Insolence is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Envy is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Avarice is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Deceit is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Fraud is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Obstinacy is an imperfection that defiles the mind. 
Rivalry is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Conceit is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Arrogance is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Vanity is an imperfection that defiles the mind. Negligence is an imperfection that defiles the mind. I intentionally repeated the words because it allows it to sink in. At least for me, it allows it to sink in. He's pointing to the staining aspect of all of these states of mind. And we can extrapolate to many other states of mind that are rooted in greed, aversion, delusion, that aren't explicitly listed here. And then he goes on, and in my understanding, you know, relating this to the analogy of the cloth, it's not explicitly drawn out here, but um, the the implication is to me that these are stains, they're, they're staining the mind, and that um, there may need to be some work to clean the cloth. You know, the, if you have a stained cloth, usually it doesn't get to be cleaned simply by wishing it so. There's some effort that's required to do some work to clean the cloth. And here is the description of this effort here. I won't read the entire thing out this time, but it's repeated for all of the states of mind again. Knowing that covetousness and unrighteous greed is an imperfection that defiles the mind, one abandons it. Knowing that ill will is an imperfection that defiles the mind, one abandons it. Through all of the 16 that are mentioned here. So, this to me is worthy of some reflection because it doesn't um, perhaps at first glance seem to describe what the work is that happens to scrub that cloth, to clean that cloth. So the two words that are used there that I'd like to reflect on a little bit are knowing knowing ill will knowing negligence knowing resentment the first the first word that's 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 called out this to me is the um turning our mindful attention to recognize these states. And he brings in wise view here in it's not just knowing them, it's knowing them as a defilement. We understand this is unwholesome, this is not a helpful state of mind. So the the knowing, in my own exploration, um, it's not so helpful to to carry the idea, um, oh, this is bad. I mean, to me, that's, that's what the idea of knowing this is a defilement that stains the mind seems to carry in the notion, this is a bad thing, I need to get rid of it. You know, this is a bad thing, I'm a bad person because I have it. Um, you know, I think that the, um, the encouragement there is and what I've seen in my own practice is that when I know the state, when I really know anger, it's so clear. It's a defilement that stains the mind. It's like I don't have to uh, think about it or judge myself around it or um, think it's a bad thing. It's just simply known. 
So this is this is the first um, exploration that we make: uh, understanding, knowing, observing. And this is a piece, a big piece of what I'll talk about today in the in the talk. Is how we do this. Um, the second word I want to highlight here is one abandons these states. And when I um, was early on reading these texts, to me that word abandon had the quality of repressing, pushing away, something like that. You know, that, uh, you know, it says one abandons it. And I thought, well, that means you're doing something. But then I began thinking about the word abandon. And what does it mean when we abandon something? It's um, not an effortful thing to abandon something. We usually will abandon something. I'll explore it from two perspectives. We'll usually abandon something when we see it's no longer useful to us. You know, a car broken down. We abandon the car. We abandon... Um, you know, when we're children, we, we like certain things. You know, we like to play with certain toys. You know, I had all these dolls and doll houses and, you know, little furniture, and I spent hours playing with that doll house. And, um, you know, it's not so hard to abandon it. <laughs> it meant a lot to me at one point, but, you know, just just walking away from it. It's, it's no longer important, it's no longer useful, no longer so relevant in a way. The other kind of connotation that abandon has at times for us, um, you know, we, we talk about, in English at least, I don't know if it's true in the Pali of the word that's being translated as abandon, and I don't actually know what the word is, I'll have to look it up. Uh, But in English, that word we do use in terms of something that we would consider negative, like abandoning a child. Um, But even that context, when I think about that use of the word and its application here to defilements, it brings in the, um, the notion of the reflection about what are we taking care of? And when we abandon a child, we abandon something that we've been taking care of. And in this case, it's kind of an interesting exploration. Are we taking care of our ill will? Are we taking care of our negligence, our contempt, our resentment? And is that helpful? So the sutta goes on, and I'll be very uh, schematic, broad brush about the rest of the sutta, but just to give you a flavor of the rest of the this text, and for those of you who are interested, this is in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutta number seven, simile of the cloth. The sutta goes on, that, and it says, once knowing the defilements, they have been abandoned. And in my own um, sense of this, the abandoning happens when the knowing is clear. The abandoning is, in a sense, the fruit of the practice. The abandoning happens naturally once the defilements are understood as defilements. Knowing these as defilements, they are abandoned. It doesn't take any effort. It's what naturally happens. The rest of the text, the rest of the sutta that he explores is very much a continuation of the natural unfolding. He says that once these defilements have been abandoned, confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha arises. Complete confidence in that arises. And from that confidence, inspiration arises naturally. From that inspiration, gladness. From gladness, 
rapture, from rapture, tranquility, from tranquility, concentration. That it's a natural unfolding. Much as that, uh, that cloth, when the work is done of cleaning the cloth, that cloth put into the vat of dye, will simply take up the dye. You know, that image to me is not one of a lot of work to take up the, the dye. To me, that's what, that's again, part of what the analogy is pointing to, the simile is pointing to. Once the work is done of understanding the defilements, there's the natural release, abandonment of the defilements. The mind naturally takes up joy, rapture, tranquility, concentration. Not a lot of chugging and effort there. It's like it just seeps in. So again, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's looking at or um, recognizing the very natural unfolding of this practice. From that space of um, those states of gladness, rapture, tranquility, concentration arising, he says, one will abide in metta, naturally abide in this field of love, expansive love. And this is the point where a little bit of work comes in again, because he points to in that space of radiant, boundless love, recognize this too is a conditioned state. So a little tiny pointing to right view there. A little, a little bit of recognition, a little bit of doing to incline the mind towards understanding this too is conditioned. This too actually... Um, has some stress in it. And from there, he says, the freedom follows. So to me, this sutta is pretty inspiring because it really points, it it describes a complete path of practice. It's one of many suttas that describes a complete uh, path through the practice from beginning to look at your defilements through to full liberation. And it's not the only path that's described. So, you know, I want to, to point that out. It's not the only one that's there in the text. Um, but, but for me, in reading this and reflecting on it, it was pretty inspiring because the work that's done here is the understanding of our minds. And from there, the rest of it unfolds. So what we're doing here is this work. It is this. We are on the path. And it, it does take some effort. But most of the effort is towards understanding. The abandoning happens more naturally. The arising of concentration, of tranquility, of rapture happens more naturally. So the primary work of our practice is not getting rid of, but understanding the defilements. So I'd like to explore a little bit more fully today some of the tools that I found helpful, particularly in this practice, for how to get to know the defilements how to understand the defilements. The basic tool, as we've been working with, is am I aware? What am I aware of? What's my attitude? Just being with and checking our relationship. That when we um, find a way into observing the defilements with a balanced mind, with wise attitude, the understanding that's necessary for the abandonment to happen will arise. And so that's our work. Being with our 
difficulties and checking the attitude, allowing any uh, attitudes that contain greed, aversion, delusion to come into the field so that we see how it's impacting our experience. That's our basic practice. It's not always so easy to just be with our experience. And there is a time to bring in some of the tools that we know from other practices. And yet sometimes, I just like to point out that sometimes we might have a kind of an unseen belief that given a particular difficulty, it's like we're a little bit afraid of our states of mind or something. You know, it's like, oh, that state of mind is there. You know, I'm going to get lost in it. I'm not going to be able to be with it. I better do something about it. So there's a little bit of fear there, you know, that's operating that, oh, I've got to bring in that tool, I'll bring in like bringing in the fire department, you know, to put out the fire, uh, as opposed to, you know, can we actually be with it? Way more often, and when I first started this practice, you know, there was, there was not a lot of trust in that capacity of mind to meet difficulty. You know, I was right there bringing in my tools, you know. And it takes some time to gain that trust. So having the, you know, maybe sense of confidence that you can meet your defilements, you can meet the difficulties of your experience. To not necessarily jump immediately to your tools. Give yourself a chance. Give your awareness a chance to meet the defilements. See what happens. I like to think about being in practice like, you know, it's like a sandbox. Let's play. You know, let's let's see what happens if I try it this way. Oh, that didn't work out too well. Let's, you know, try it this way, you know. To to not have the sense that it has to be done right. There isn't particularly a right anyway. So, uh, you know, have the sense of it being playful. I think one of the key tools in my toolkit in working with defilements is um that I really have gained the confidence and I've been trying to express this to you, that um, it's possible to be mindful of anything. That if we find a difficulty in being mindful of something, it's just that we're not quite, um, maybe the mindfulness isn't quite strong enough or we haven't quite understood the state. Actually, I think a lot of that that is, um, is, is what happens, that something is going on, some kind of um, hidden agenda or hidden um, aversion or greed is kind of operating in the background. And um, we're not seeing it. But when we see that, it becomes much easier to simply be with the difficulties. The, often when we have trouble being with something, it's because there's some kind of hidden defilement in the mind, some attitude that's not so clear to us. And in my own um, practice, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll explore, what might, how might it be possible for the mindfulness to infiltrate this terrain of this difficulty? How might that be possible? And, you know, just trying to rest, perhaps, being with, and I find, poop, the mind goes off. It's like, okay, well, that didn't work. Let's try again. <laughs> Let's just try again. And, and that willingness to just keep trying and let the mind get lost in it has, has served me well, actually. You know, let the mind um, get caught for a little while. Then I wake up, it's like, oh, well, let's just try again. One of the... Um, kind of caveats I'll give to that is that if you find that in trying to be present, just being with some difficulty, that the it feels like you get caught and then sucked into the rabbit hole, pulled in, unable to get out, 
I think most of you know that sense of being pulled into the rabbit hole. Um, that that's the time when you uh, you know surface a little bit. You get your nose above the water. It's like okay, and you're feeling like oh, you know, you're barely able to get your nose above the water. That's probably the time to okay, yeah. Let me let me bring in some of my other tools. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, if it feels um, like the mindfulness is getting swamped by the defilement, yes, by all means, bring in some of your other tools. But don't just assume immediately that you can't be with something. We have a lot more capacity than we give ourselves credit for. So one of the areas where difficulty often arises is around pain in the body. You know, pain itself is an unpleasant um, bodily experience, and there's often a lot of resistance, a lot of aversion to it. And one of the um, explorations here is some of us having practiced with um, pain a lot, um, I was at least in this category. I knew that I could get pretty concentrated by kind of forcing my attention onto the painful experience, even if I was averse to it, you know, even if there was resistance to it. It's like, no, I can get in there and, and you know, really push into that pain. And it's kind of like I thought I was transcending the aversion by doing that, but actually I was cultivating the aversion by doing that. <laughs> um so if there is resistance, aversion to pain, it's really most helpful to recognize the aversion, recognize the resistance. To Again, it's kind of like you're noticing the attitude. You may notice that the pain is there, but the, the resistance, the aversion is in the field, kind of between you and the pain. And so get to know that. Get to know how the resistance works. You may notice in seeing that resistance in the field, that aversion in the field, maybe it fluctuates a little bit. Sometimes it's stronger. When the aversion is stronger, you may notice a comparable increase in the pain. Sometimes the aversion may get less strong. You may notice in that case, oh, actually, the sensation's still pretty strong, but it's not such a problem anymore. So noticing how the mind impacts the body. Exploring how the mental state of aversion resistance impacts the experience. That's an important um, lesson, actually, is seeing how the mind and body interact with each other. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. So in terms of exploring pain... um, If pain is unbearable, please move. <laughs> you know, this this doesn't have to be a um a torture chamber here. Um, check in with yourself. I mean, one one of the ways to explore pain would be, you know, you notice the pain and, you know, just let yourself know as soon as you notice that pain, you know, if it gets unbearable, it's okay to move. You know, so that, that that sometimes can take some of the pressure off of the mind. Because often the mind is like um, feeling that it's locked in or, you know, in a, in, a, in a prison cell or something. I'm not allowed to move. And that exacerbates the, the painful experience. And so just let yourself know right away, if it gets too difficult, it's okay to move. So that can, that can allow some of the resistance to go away because sometimes we're resistant to working with pain because we feel like it means we have to stay with it forever until it goes away or whatever. I mean, we just feel like, oh, until the bell rings. You know, how many of us have sat there until the bell rings, you know? We don't have to do that. So um, if it gets to the place where it feels like it's exhausting to work with the pain, so at one time uh, I was listening to Sayadaw Upandita, and he said, pain wearies the mind. You know, when you're, if you're working with pain for too long, it ex- it's exhausting. And so to be um, 
judicious, be discerning about how you bring your attention to it. So giving yourself the permission to move if you need to, then seeing if you can recognize the relationship to the pain, noticing the resistance, the aversion. How is it for you if, it's, if, if what you're recognizing is the not liking? Now, I find actually when I bring that often, I mean, not always, I mean, sometimes the pain is really strong, but often it's actually kind of a niggling little thing and it's the idea that this is a big problem or this is a pain that's going to get worse. It's going to, I'm going to not be able to move. I'm going to have to sit in a, in a chair for the rest of the retreat or I'm not going to be able to walk down the stairs or whatever. The mind goes off into its uh, charge. Um, so often it's just a, a kind of a normal little pain and it's our mind that's really you know, charging off into fear, confusion, anxiety, dread, and that's um, creating a mental climate of unpleasantness that is multiplied with the physical unpleasantness. So if we can, um, you know, check the attitude and recognize actually, oh, there's an unpleasant sensation and I don't like it. Sometimes my mind goes, oh yeah, oh, it's unpleasant and I don't like it. Oh yeah, okay. And it, it um, somehow just recognizing the not liking can um, put my mind into a state where it's, it's okay. And it actually recognizes, yeah, I don't like it, and it's just more of a regular niggling little pain. It's not like a, uh, a tearing, searing uh, pain that feels like, you know, my sciatic nerve is being compressed. So just check the attitude, see if that helps support the ability to be present with the pain. Keep checking the attitude, encourage relaxation. See, you know, explore this. Explore this uh, terrain of mind and body and how the attitude impacts the physical experience. And if at any point it feels like that's enough, by all means, move. And also, um, take care with certain kinds of pain. I discovered with, with myself that there was particular pain radiating down my leg. Um, that did mean that my sciatic nerve was being compressed, and I didn't move with that for several months on a long retreat and ended up with pretty serious problems. So, um, you know, we can force ourselves to stay with pain. And pain is sometimes a signal. So take care with pain in your body. If you have an injury, particularly take care with pain. If you come out of a sitting and there's some numbness in your uh, body and that numbness lasts for a long time, you know, sometimes we can get numbness from from blocking um, blood flow, like our legs fall asleep or something. That's not particularly a, um, a dangerous thing unless... As uh, one yogi did on one retreat, got up and tried to walk um, with a completely numb leg and fell down and broke her leg. Um, I was manager on that retreat. Um, So, yes, it's dangerous to try to walk when your legs are numb. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't try to walk when your legs are numb. But it's not particularly dangerous other than that. Uh, you know, if your legs fall asleep. But if there's a numbness that persists for five, ten minutes, that usually means there's been a compression of a nerve. And do not sit that way again. You know, don't don't sit in a way that will compress nerves because nerves can get permanently damaged with that compression. And I learned that the hard way. So, um Although actually mine wasn't permanently damaged because it took years, but it, it did fairly well recover. So play, again, this is the, the sandbox of pain now. Play with the exploration of working with pain. Giving yourself permission to move. I think by far the, really the bigger area I mean, pain can be challenging for us, but really it's our minds that create our struggles. It's the mental reactivity that we really suffer with. And often, particularly habitual patterns, habitual um, old, well-worn grooves 
have many layers, many uh, complex parts that fit together. So we have a sense of it being a big, complicated mess. So it's helpful in this kind of um, difficulty. See if there can be a sense of curiosity. You know, to not have a combative relationship with these difficult experiences, but more of a sense of, again, this is, this is what the Buddha is suggesting. Understand these. This is the first noble truth as well. Understand dukkha. Understanding is what uh, sets the unfolding of the natural deepening of the path in motion. So seeing if there can be a curiosity about these defilements. This, the, this is the path of practice. When these defilements are arising, the path is to understand them. It's not in the way of the path. It is the path. So having a sense that these um, particularly difficult patterns, you know, old habits, you know, the ones that kind of really bite us over and over again, have many layers, many different threads, we can... um, sometimes have the belief or sense that, well, what we need to do is to pick the whole thing apart and figure out what's in the middle. Because if we can find what's in the middle, that's what's going to um, allow it to let go. You know, we, 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 we have that kind of, I don't know if it's in our culture or if it's more broad than just our own culture, but we do seem to have that sense of... Um, pulling things apart, of, of thinking, wow, this thing is so complicated, I need to figure it out. So we may have a tendency to dive into, to try to kind of go into the middle. Or perhaps we've seen at times, you know, a particular pattern arise, and we've seen enough of it to recognize, yeah, I know when this thing arises, you know, it's related to that old pattern from when I was growing up as a kid and that person uh, did that thing to me and I know there's fear in there somewhere. And, you know, so we kind of try to leap into the middle of it to find the fear. While what's actually happening, what we're actually feeling at the moment perhaps is anxiety or confusion. But we know that underneath all that is fear, or we think we know that underneath all that is fear, so let's you know, dig in and find the fear. So what I'd like to suggest is that's not so helpful, that notion of trying to dig in. Because you know, I've seen in my own practice that uh, if I'm more willing to kind of just take the whole big mess, it's like put my arms around the whole big mess and see what's obvious about this mess. Oh, in this instance, in this moment, confusion is what's obvious. And in this moment, anxiety is what's obvious. And in this moment, anger is what's obvious. You know, so it, it kind of may change. You may get little kind of feelings or bits of the threads coming to the surface if you're willing to just hang out with what's obvious. So this hanging out with what's obvious is is a kind of a more gentle way to explore, to investigate our experience. Just meeting what's obvious. It's a it's kind of like data gathering. I talked about being a naturalist. You know, it's um, um we just observe what is most clear in this moment. You know, we can't it, it, it's it's most helpful to just see what's what's most obvious, and then over time, we get more and more information about the patterns. You know, these old habitual patterns they come up a lot; they keep coming up. So we have a lot of opportunity to see them from different perspectives. You know, we'll see the 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 you know in this kind of situation when it comes up this way then fear is more predominant when it comes up this way confusion is more predominant so we you know we get just little bits of information little gatherings of data that gathering of data is our that's our job 
that's our job as as um, that's the knowing of the experience. The gathering of the data is our work. The figuring it out, at least in my experience, the figuring it out begins to happen as the data has been gathered. The, the mind begins to understand naturally on its own how these patterns are put together. It begins to understand naturally on its own how to abandon them. There are ways that our mind can understand things that we have no clue about. If we're more patient and simply engage in this data gathering, the wisdom of the mind will strengthen. The wisdom of uh, the natural kind of homing mechanism towards well-being will strengthen. So what does it mean to investigate? I mean, I've talked about noticing what's obvious. That's kind of, that's kind of the basic tool for just being with experience. And sometimes that may not be quite enough. Um, so sometimes it can actually be helpful to bring in some other um, supports. So I'm going to suggest or offer a few of those supports that I found helpful in this style of practice. One of the first supports I find helpful is consciously, and I've talked about this already, so I'm just going to remind you, consciously bringing in wise view. Here's this big mess of stuff. Remind yourself. It's just an object. It's just an object. It's just this big mess of stuff. It's nature. It's a product of causes and conditions. It's dukkha. That one has been helpful for me. This is dukkha. For me in particular, that one seems um, to remind me that I'm connected with the teaching of the Buddha that, oh, this big, complicated, messy thing, this is dukkha. The Buddha asked me to understand it. That's my job here. So it it, it just brings in that perspective of recognizing dukkha, understanding dukkha. I'm on the path. Oh, good, I'm on the path. (laughs) I'm not lost. Actually, this is is the path. So that, that helps me, bringing in that reflection. This is dukkha. And in that exploration of bringing in right view, and the other day when I talked about practical right view, I encouraged you to you know, find language that works for you to express your wisdom. You know, for me, this is nature. This is dukkha. That kind of language helps for me. Finding your own language. And then seeing what happens. I mean, it's kind of like that, that sense of when I, when I talked about Um, dropping in the request into your mind and body, may the body relax, you know, not to do anything with it, but to just drop it in and see how that impacts the system. It's kind of similar with this. You drop in the, the reflection, this is dukkha. You don't try to do anything with it. Just drop it in, but then see how does it impact your experience. It may create a little bit of a sense of a a little more spaciousness. A little bit of a, oh, okay, I can actually, this is dukkha. Oh, right, I can meet this. So see how does it impact your uh, experience to bring in these reflections. Then some other questions that can help, particularly around difficult states of mind. Um... You can use questions in a way rather than, it's, it's interesting, it's, um, you know, we could, we could like fall back on our regular tools and think, okay, you know, like I think somebody brought up RAIN the other day, recognition, acceptance, investigation, non-identification. We could use those as ways to say, okay, let me now look at the body. Let me do that. Let me see how this, um, uh, uh, 
difficult state is impacting the body. And that's one, one tool that is very helpful here. That's one way in is to, to choose, to consciously say, okay, let me look at the body, you know, that directing the attention. Another way in potentially that you could try, see if this works, see if this kind of avenue in supports you or, or has, has uh, an impact for you. Instead of consciously directing the attention like that, kind of ask the question of yourself. How does this impact the body? So asking the question, how does this impact the body? And then not trying to do it. Not then saying, okay, and now I'm going to do looking at the body. But just drop the question in and just continue noticing what's obvious. Sometimes when we drop in a question like that and just keep noticing what's obvious, naturally, because the mind kind of attunes to language, the mind will start investigating the body. So it's not something we have to do. Again, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a more um, easeful way of investigating. See if that supports you. So this, the set of questions that I'm going to suggest here are in that vein. Drop them into your meditation. See what kind of impact they have. If you find after using these questions, there's still a lot of inability to meet the experience, then try using your uh, familiar tools. You know, the ones, you know, okay, let me pay attention to, to my body. Let me direct the attention to this area. So that's one question. How does it make the, f- the body feel? Of course, what's the attitude? Checking the attitude, asking that question, and again, asking the question and seeing what's revealed. Here's a good one. This one um, I find really interesting to drop this question in. And again, not to figure it out, not to try to find the answer, but to see what might bubble up. What purpose is this difficult state serving? What purpose is it serving? Sometimes we can find some very surprising things in asking that question. And then, how are emotions and body related? That's another kind of question we can ask. How are the emotions and the body related? So those are ways of investigating, you know, using the questions, not to try to figure things out. And some people I know, um, using language like this, sends them into thinking. For, the, for, the, for people, for those kinds of um, minds, this kind of tool is probably not the one to use. You know, experiment with it, see what happens. If, see if you can just kind of drop in a question and then settle back and just keep noticing what's obvious. If that, if that doesn't work for you, you know, just let it go. The, 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 you know, minds are so different. Um, I would have, but again, you know, give yourself uh, the chance to experiment because I would have said for myself, this kind of question would never have been effective for me because based on the way my, I thought my mind worked. And I found it to be very helpful, this use of... Um, you know, dropping in these almost requests or questions that guide the meditation without the active mind kind of saying, you know, I, I sometimes felt like I was dragging the mind around, pay attention to that, pay attention to that, pay attention to that. It was exhausting. Whereas when I could just say, oh, how is the body right now anyway? There is. There's the body. Oh, that's how the body is right now. Rather than having to have the sense of dragging the mind around to look at things. So I found it to be a very interesting um, tool and one that I would not have thought would be very effective for me. And so, you know, check it out. Check it out for yourself and see if it's helpful. A couple of more tools. 
These are more um, a little bit of doing when states get more challenging than simply to be with things as they are. Sometimes when a difficulty comes up, um, our mind has a habit of collapsing into a narrow field around that difficulty. It's like the entire world becomes that state of mind. And we feel like we're just like in the prison of that state of mind. Uh, so sometimes the habit of mind, or what naturally happens to us, is that the mind collapses. It can be kind of aware of it, but it's kind of collapsed into uh, a narrower field. And so sometimes consciously reminding yourself, I might have said this in the hall, I know I've said it in some of the groups, consciously reminding yourself, there's a lot of other things happening in the present moment. You know, Consciously expanding the field of awareness. There's also sounds happening. There's also other body sensations happening. Oh yeah, and there's that state. Oh, and there's um, the breeze on my face. And oh, there's that state. And so to kind of make the container bigger consciously, you may find it collapses down again. See if you can, you know, back up, back up. See if you can allow the container to get some bigger. Consciously letting uh, awareness be broader. With states that are persistent, that happen a lot for us, happen, you know, uh, uh, habitual kinds of um, states of mind, habitual kinds of difficulty. Um, I found a a kind of sometimes it's it's all that that's necessary is to just notice three one of three states around that difficulty. Like not even needing to ask the question, what's obvious or how's it impacting the body, but just, is it there? Is it present? Is it absent? That's so amazingly helpful, especially with persistent um, states of mind that are difficult that we tend to identify with. Recognize when it's not there. When it's not there, um, and the recognition that it's not there begins to poke holes in the uh, congealing of an identity around that state. Because it's not there. If it's not there in this moment, it's not me in this moment. And when it arises, it feels so much like this is who I am. But notice when it's not there. So... Notice when it's present, notice when it's absent. And sometimes just that simplicity. Oh, it's here. Oh, it's gone. It's here, it's gone. When it's present, I've also found it helpful to recognize, um, is it present and I'm okay with it? Or do I feel caught by it? And I may not even be able to tell so much, oh yes, this is the attitude of fear or aversion or frustration or confusion, but it feels like it's a problem. I mean, maybe that's all that it feels like. It's a problem. So there's the feeling of being kind of stuck to it with sticky glue or feeling caught by it. And just to recognize, oh, caught. It's there and caught is happening. That that can be the simplest, that can be almost a simple kind of attitude around a difficulty. It's there and there's caughtness happening. And then to recognize when not caught happens. When it's just there, and there's the okayness with it, not not a problem. On one retreat, I was exploring a particular state of mind and used this tool of exploring present, absent, caught when present or not caught, and um, you know, it was a state that was persisting over several weeks, and you know it would come, it would go, and I would notice when it was not there. And at some point, at one point, you know, in one particular walking period, it was, it was like popping in and out, like within split seconds. It's like, oh, there it is. Oh, it's gone. Oh, it's back. Oh, I'm caught. Oh, it's gone. It was kind of mind blowing how quickly it was uh, coming and going. And that, um, you know, that was really actually pretty helpful to. Uh, just have that simplicity of noticing it's there. Oh, it's gone. 
What's there? Oh, caught. Oh, it's gone. You know, just to to keep the the noticing really at a very simple level sometimes can be all that's necessary. And just to restate, as I said at the beginning, sometimes difficulties get overwhelming. They pull us into the rabbit hole. We can't feel like we can't extricate ourselves. If you find yourself in that state, do what it takes. Do whatever it takes to find your way back to some sort of balance. You know, maybe it's taking a walk. Maybe it's going and staring out a window and looking at the trees. Maybe it's watching the birds. Often nature is really helpful in that kind of a situation when we feel really caught. Go out and look at the sky. You know, remind yourself that the universe is vast. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, we develop this little tiny sense of things, you know, when we're really caught. And, you know, it, it can help to just expand our notion of the state of, of our experience. So, fi- you know, do what it takes to, if there's overwhelm, Sometimes I find if there's overwhelm about a particular experience, sometimes the, the, one of the helpful tools for me has been find some neutral experience and just put my attention on that. I found for myself personally, it wasn't so helpful to find a pleasant experience or try to cultivate a pleasant experience like metta. I mean, sometimes that's recommended. You know, if there's a lot of anger, metta is said to be the antidote. For me, that wasn't so helpful. Because I tried bringing in the quality of metta, and what happened is this part of my mind that was really struggling is like, you're not paying attention to me. You're just trying to pretend that I'm not here. So, you know, it's like that was not so helpful for me. But neutral, you know, that, di- that part of my mind that was kind of caught in that difficulty, and it's a turning away from the difficulty. It's, a, it's not a pushing away. It's not a rejecting you know, this, this turning away has to be done with kindness and non-aversion. It's more like, yeah, I see you. I see you're asking for attention. Not now. I don't have the strength right now. I'll come back when I'm stronger, but not now. <laughs> so being kind to yourself, having that sense of kindness and compassion, not rejecting that state, but also not buying into it. And they say, you know, I'll pay attention to you later, but right now I'm going to put my attention on my feet on the ground. That's what I'm going to do. And just something really neutral. That for me was really a helpful balance for being sucked into that rabbit hole. So these difficulties... Our practice is to know them. This is the unfolding of the path. They're not in the way. And, you know, we might believe, yeah, yeah, she says they're not in the way, but, you know, I know that really the deep insights will happen once they're gone. You know, once I get into that pure mind, once I get into the, you know, the place where, yeah, rapture, concentration, tranquility are arising, that's when the insights will arise. So, yeah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to understand these things, but the good stuff isn't going to happen until they're gone. That was the way my mind thought. Um, What I've seen actually is that in the very exploration of these states, some of the most sticky, difficult states, in the very exploration of those, deep, deep insight and freedom can come. So they're not in the way. Actually, deep understanding of impermanence, deep understanding of not-self can arise through the very meeting of these difficulties. So enjoy your defilements. Or enjoy uh, knowing your defilements. Not enjoy your defilements. Enjoy getting to know your defilements. Because that is our path. And I should let you borrow. If you're feeling particularly um, confused by your defilements, you're welcome to take the mouse and sit him in front of you and see him smiling up at you. <laughs> you can use this prop if you wish. <laughs> hmm. So, thank you for your attention. 
And let's sit for just a moment to settle the mind. 